Welcome to Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. In this format, we bring you timely and relevant conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Join us as we explore new ways of thinking about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. In this episode, our guest is Leland Gershel, Managing Director and Senior Analyst of Biopharmaceuticals. And our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking. This episode was recorded on December 9, 2020. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to click on the subscribe button. Welcome to our episode titled Biopharma and Healthcare Superheroes. In this trying time of COVID, we're here to focus on a topic of innovation and revolution in healthcare that's exciting to patients and investors alike, biopharmaceuticals. Our aging population, the surge in prevalence of chronic disease like cancer, increases in obesity and autoimmune disease, all underscore the opportunity and need for the solutions offered by biopharmaceuticals. In this episode, we'll take a look at some new discoveries about the immune response to COVID-19, we'll discuss the immuno-oncology revolution and breakthroughs in RNAi, we'll examine challenges in accessibility, and finally, as always, we'll talk future and look ahead to the areas of greatest investment opportunity in biopharma. We're thrilled to have Leland Gershel as our guest. Leland is the Managing Director and Senior Analyst covering biopharmaceuticals at Oppenheimer. Prior to joining Opco, Leland was Chief Financial Officer of Capricora Therapeutics and Tonics Pharmaceuticals. In addition, he's worked on both the buy side and the sell side, and he's authored numerous editorial and review articles in his field. Leland earned his MD and his PhD in organic chemistry from Columbia and his BA magna cum laude in chemistry and Asian studies from Dartmouth. So with all of that, welcome Leland. Thank you, Jane. Delighted to be here. Okay, so Leland, can you please start us off by telling us what biopharmaceuticals are? Absolutely. So biopharma really sits in between the traditional pharmaceutical model and the kind of biotech, biotechnology um, industry. So I think investors are more familiar with pharma being the types of molecules that are drugs in your cabinet that are pills that you take. Um, biotech being all the protein, the antibodies, recombinant proteins, drugs like that. Biopharma really sits in the middle, and what we really take it to mean is, is those younger companies that tend to be smaller and spend an outsized proportion on their research and development as they develop new pharmaceutical assets, new intellectual property, and new patents to protect those versus being you know, large hulking companies with huge sales forces and, and lots of you know, manufacturing plants and so forth. Uh, generally, these companies are working on very rare so-called orphan disorders. These are the kinds of disorders that the much larger companies you know, haven't focused their energies on 
typically because of the smaller patient populations, but also because the disorders um, that are involved are simply harder to address in traditional approaches. Mm -hmm. So it's really cutting-edge, innovative companies. So given that, and given that it's a wide range of expertise, what are the criteria that you look for in determining what companies you want to cover? What excites us for our coverage um, would be those companies that are, are taking innovative approaches to diseases, um, as I mentioned, that may have been quite recalcitrant to, uh, to previously attempted strategies, companies that tend to be smaller, companies that tend to have founders and management teams that, that may have come from academia or from larger companies where they left and, and raised money to start their own uh, enterprises. Mm -hmm. What's important, uh, however, is, is not so much the fact that everything is new and novel. The science is innovative, but you're looking for development paths and, and roadmaps to approval and commercialization that are fairly clear. So what we, what we like to spend our time on are those companies that have uh, clinical stage candidates that have been validated with, with early data. Well, and I guess we, we couldn't be here and do an episode on your topic without touching on COVID-19. And as it relates to your area of expertise, it sounds like that there are some recent studies that have shown that T-cell immunity against COVID-19 is likely to be present within most adults six months after infection, which is a, a good thing, right? Yes, Jane, that's right. So this was from a British Medical Journal uh, article that came out recently. Uh, this was in about 100 patients where they looked at their blood and they found that there was a 100% rate of persistent T-cell immunity. This is very encouraging because T-cell immunity is the component of the immune response that's really the longer-lasting um, kind of durable protection that you would hope to get from, from any kind of prior infection or from a vaccine mm -hmm. versus the antibody response. The antibody response is what's the early response, but not very long-lasting. So what we you know had hoped to see was that we would see a T-cell response that we did. We also saw that the peak antibody response level strongly correlated with the peak T-cell response level. So you could actually predict which patients would have more robust T-cell responses. So I think we've you know learned a lot here. It's obviously early, and we'd like to sort of prove that's with more data. Um, a question, of course, that this doesn't answer is to, to what extent you can predict on what the risk of long-term reinfection may be in mm -hmm. any person who's recovered from infection. So we'll have to, mm -hmm. to explore here, but it's certainly promising. And we'll take promising at this point. Well, staying on that, that topic of immune response, Clearly, one of the areas of great progress in creating immune responses in cancer treatment. And cancer, as we know, is the second leading cause of death globally. This is a, a huge area. Can, can you help us understand the advances created by immunotherapy against cancer? Sure. So there's a few different uh, flavors of, of immunotherapy in cancer or, or even more specifically immuno-oncology which is the term that, that has been adopted um, for this. So we, we have you know, the realm of so-called cancer vaccines, which is the idea of eff effectively treating somebody who has cancer with a vaccine, which trains their immune system to come back and fight that tumor and destroy it. Um, this has been an idea that's been a long time in the making, not as productive, I think, as we would have liked. I think we're learning a lot more recently about how to get these cancer vaccines to be successful. Um, Generally, what we found is that you just don't get the level of robustness and response that you'd like mm -hmm. to have, so you don't get 
quite the amount of tumor killing that you'd want. Now, one company that I recently initiated coverage on called PDS Biotech actually has a strategy where they do see, and this is just back to our COVID discussion, a very robust and durable killer T-cell response. Uh, with hmm. their with their adjuvant that they use. So in their recent trial, six out of 10 patients had complete disappearance of precancerous cervical lesions, obviously very encouraging. They're now entering a phase two study in head and neck cancer with uh, with Merck. So that's that's one flavor of immuno-oncology. One that maybe is more, you know, has been more productive in terms of generating products is an area called CAR-T therapy. Um, I think many investors would be familiar with this term. And CAR-T, is where one takes cells from the body, engineers a certain type of molecule into those T cells at a third-party location, and then the, the cells are brought back to the patient and reinfused. And what these T cells have been, been effectively engineered to do is to target the particular surface antigen on their tumor so that those T cells, which are native to them, can come back and like warriors in a, in a, uh, you know, in a battle go off and fight the fight that cancer. They tend to be safer than chemo and other drugs traditionally for cancer because they're just so specific. And again, they're your own T cells. Um, and they're also highly targeted. So you tend not to get a lot of off-target effects. I think a couple of reasons why investors know the CAR-T space is because um, one of the original companies to develop CAR-T called Kite, Kite Pharmaceuticals was bought by Gilead for $12 billion a few years ago, mm. obviously a, land, a landmark deal. In terms of companies I cover, there's a few that are in this um, game. One of them is actually very interesting called Cassie. Cassie Pharmaceuticals is a U.S. company. Uh, it's based in the U.S., but its operations are principally in China. And if you know the evolving Chinese pharmaceutical market, it's very dynamic and becoming very westernized. And mm -hmm. Cassie is actually looking to bring the first CAR-T therapy to China. So that's one that's in mid-stage development and we're, we're very excited about. Um, the, the final um, kind of flavor uh, here of, of immuno-oncology would be in those therapies that work alongside others to improve uh, the strength of the immune system's response to cancer. And I think that the class that's best known here are the so-called checkpoint inhibitors. Checkpoint inhibitors are drugs that tend to make the immune environment around the tumor much more amenable to your immune system cells entering it. The, the area around the tumor tends to keep out your immune system, and that's why your cancers are able to grow. So there are several companies that I'm aware of, some of which I cover, that have drugs in development that basically diminish the ability of the tumor microenvironment to keep out your immune cells, and then by letting them in, it's kind of like the Trojan horse. They come in and then they're able to to do battle. So those are the, the three areas of immuno-oncology that, that uh, we focus on. It's interesting, and maybe you could spend a moment on response rates, and are there certain types of cancers where the results are more encouraging? So with, with immuno-oncology, you know, we, we've seen actually a, a number of responses in solid tumors, but it's really been in the hematologic cancers that we've seen the best responses. That's probably related to the fact that these cells come from the bone marrow and they circulate in the blood, and so it's easiest to access the tumor cells, which are also in the blood or the bone marrow, versus those that might be hiding out in a, in a liver or, or a pancreas or, or some mm -hmm. other organ like that. However, we are seeing innovative advances that are enabling um, these same types of immunotherapeutics in cancer to get to to get to the solid tumors. And I think the checkpoint inhibitors are probably at the forefront. Merck's Keytruda 
which is uh, on track, I think actually did 11 billion in sales last year, um, wow. is, is a drug which is a, it's, a, it's, a um, it's an antibody which happens to be very good at treating cancers, not only in the, uh, in the bloodstream, but also um, solid tumors as well. So that's one that we're very excited about in terms of leading the charge for showing that we can use amino oncology pretty broadly. And I know another area of real progress and investor interest has been in RNA interference. There were decades of efforts and we're finally seeing results. Can you explain what we're talking about with RNA interference? Yeah, sure. So so RNA, just to bring everyone maybe back to, to high school for many people. So RNA mm-hmm. is the middleman between the DNA that's in the nucleus of pretty much all your cells in your body and your proteins, which are really the actors that carry out all the functions that your DNA is encoding. So DNA gets transcribed to RNA, and then the RNA message gets translated to protein. So if you don't have RNA for a certain protein, you won't make that protein. So where RNA interference comes in is for those disorders that are due to an overactivity or overabundance of a particular protein, you can then silence or very much reduce that protein's um, presence or function by getting rid of the RNA that codes for it. And so based on key discoveries that led to the 2006 Nobel Prize, we're now able to selectively target RNA molecules that relate to a certain protein that's related to a disorder uh, with drugs that are RNA, themselves are RNA-based, and they can get into cells. It took a long time to really have the rubber meet the road here. Uh, as I mentioned, the scientific discoveries were some time ago. It was only in the last few years that drugs in the RNAi class got approved. I happen to cover Alnylam. This is a $15 billion company that is entirely uh, dedicated toward RNAi therapies. There were some safety issues over the intervening years that caused them to have to take a few steps back and re- refine their technology. But I think we're really at the point now where we can reliably have RNA therapies for a number of disorders. The third one from, from Alnylam was just approved a few weeks ago, and that's called Oxlumo for a certain type of hyperoxaluria. We have other companies that are in this space too, which I, I don't cover, but uh, Arrowhead, for example, and Dicerna. And, and one thing to say about these companies is not only do they have their own proprietary pipelines of drugs that they're developing um, that are wholly owned, but they also uh, have collaborations with the traditional pharma companies. So, you know, for example, you know, Dicerna you know, has, has, has deals with Roche and Lilly. Arrowhead has a big deal that could be worth almost $4 billion with J&J. So I think mm-hmm. that's kind of showing you where the old pharma industry is heading in terms of, you know, where it's going to find its future revenue. And it's tough to talk about all of these advances without raising the issue of pricing. Can you just talk to the issue of pricing and accessibility? Sure. So, you know, pricing has been a, a fairly chronic topic, um, you know, for, for, for a number of years now, just given that drug prices seem, seem to only go up and newer drugs only seem to be more expensive mm-hmm. uh, than their predecessors, which is which has generally been... Been true, but I think what I should also add to that is two things. First of all, as I mentioned, you know, this this greater and greater focus on these very rare orphan disorders. So the number of patients that we're treating with some of these very expensive, you know, multi-six-figure drugs, you know, per year, really may only be a few thousand patients, right? So the overall mm-hmm. uh, economic impact may not be that large versus, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. We're talking millions and millions of people. You know, even if they're getting cheaper drugs, that adds up to a lot. Second of all, is that you know all all drugs eventually, for the most part, you know, go off exclusivity because they lose their 
patent protection, they lose other protections that the FDA may have given them. So even though the new drugs may be very expensive, um, their window of time during which they'll have to generate such revenue is going to be limited. So, you know, they will presumably be replaced by, of course, newer drugs that will be equally or perhaps more expensive, but that's kind of like a moving stream where, you know, things remain fairly level overall even as the different players come and go. And a related issue in terms of accessibility, I guess. In a episode here, I spoke with Fred Larson and we talked about challenges in the supply chain and particularly in pharma, given our reliance on India and China. So now that we're well into COVID-19 and everyone's become very familiar with the challenges in supply chains, do you think that post-COVID we'll see some real changes? Yes, I think we're, we're already seeing indications of that. Um, you know, we, we currently have, as of the last report that I read, you know, 13% of, of all of the U.S. active ingredients are made in China, 18% are made in India. So together, that's, you know, more than, uh, you know, the, the 26% or so that are made here and maybe about 28% that are made in Europe. So it's really fully a third of all of our medications come from those two countries. I think that's something which was done, obviously, for economic uh, reasons. We had a highly skilled, uh, you know, labor force that, that could be um, paid a lot less than, than they would if they were here in the States. But I think that's come back, you know, as a rude awakening in terms of the threat to our supply chain in a COVID environment. Um, and I think that companies are much more keen to have at least more of their manufacturing, at least for more of their critical products, you know, here in the States or, or perhaps in, in, in Western Europe. Um, but even, you know, even though China and India may be a focus, um, because of just how much has moved over to those countries, you know, even other countries that are in more Western locales, still with COVID, I think it can make things difficult because you have countries in Europe that, you know, are, are shut down or you have companies in, in South America, you have companies all over the place that can variably have restrictions and lockdowns. So I think, you know, containing things more domestically is certainly a direction that we're going to see. Well, as you know, in these episodes, we are tasked to talk future and look ahead. And you've talked on a couple of areas of innovation. Maybe you could identify some other areas that you cover that you're most excited about looking ahead over the next few years? Sure. So so as we talked about briefly, our interference is, is on a tear, uh, so to speak, and I think we're going to see that generating several new drugs over the next few years that are going to be very important. Uh, one area that we didn't uh, touch on uh, as much as gene therapy, also like RNAi, took a long time to come into its own. It also had safety issues that really interfered with progress some years ago. But now we have companies and even products that are approved that are in the gene therapy class. So, you know, drug called Luxterna, which is out of Roche for a certain retinal disorder. Um, we also have Zolgesma, uh, which is a gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy on the market. So we have validation now from a regulatory perspective. I think as we get further ahead, we're going to see more gene therapies. Biomarin, which uh, I cover. Um, has a longstanding franchise in the rare genetic disorder called PKU. These are people who can't take a phenylalanine in their diet, and up until now, they've only been able to either modify their diet or take certain chronic medications to get rid of the PKU, the, the phenylalanine that they happen to take good. There's now a gene therapy at Biomarin that they're working on. It's in the clinic, and we're going to have data in the first part of next year. And gosh, if we could have a you know one-and-done injection for somebody, 
to not have to worry about felonies in their diet for many years, that would be a real breakthrough. So that's the kind of thing that we're looking forward to in Biofarm. Well, you know, listen, given the speed of innovation and promising investment opportunity, all of these topics are going to continue to be so relevant. And we really appreciate you spending time talking about these matters with us. And I know you're happy to continue to talk individually with investors, but this was very helpful to go through all of these issues at this time. So thank you so much, Leland. Jane, thank you. It was my pleasure.